we've been talking about vision for the last three weeks, and we've got a few minutes, and we can talk about it for a little bit today. So let's, we, we've kind of talked about how we're not using this vision series to lay out Faith Chapel's corporate vision. Here's what we're going to do, and please fulfill these roles, okay? That's not what we're doing. We're seeking the Lord for fresh vision for our lives and, and learning about vision and the way that he speaks to us. So here's what we ended with last week, and I'm going to use it for transition this week, okay? So here was the think about that we ended with. Don't ever give up what you want the most for what you want immediately. Don't give up what you want the most for what you want immediately. And it is so easy in the moments of life when you're challenged or when you're hurting or when you're tempted to cave in and to give up on something that you're believing for that you need to keep pressing in that day. Three thoughts come to my mind about this. Think about it. Number one, God gives us vision because he enjoys communicating with us. I want you to first of all know God isn't trying to hide himself away where he can't be discovered. He sent Jesus because he was on a discovery mission of you. And he wants to speak to you and he wants to show himself to you and he wants to give direction to you. Okay, he's for you, he's not against you. Number two, God gives us vision because he wants us to know his plan for us. So first of all, he really just enjoys communicating. How many of your children have entered that stage where they enjoy communicating? Well, maybe I should just say they enjoy talking. And you can be shutting the car door after getting them fastened in and walking around to the other side of the car and you open it up and it's still going. Is there anybody there? All right. So that's, there's some of them, they just enjoy talking. But God actually really does enjoy communicating. And along that line, he's watching to see if we're listening, if we're paying attention, if we're being attentive to the things that he wants to communicate to us. Number three, God gives us vision to encourage us to press through the momentary challenges for the eternal rewards. I'm sure if I ask people in this room, how many of you have had many times because of the vision God's given you or the plan or the purpose or the goal that you're working toward, you don't think, choose things that you might want to do in that moment because you're thinking longer term than just that moment. You're pressing into something that's greater and that's more valuable and deeper than just that momentary moment, right? So we don't give in, we don't cave. So that's what we kind of ended with last week, um, and let's go into stuff this week. I've got three thoughts that I have for you, and the first one, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever really thought of yourself as God's vision? Have you ever really thought, and I'm not saying prideful, egotistical, like, you better believe I'm a vision from God. That's not where I'm going. But have you, have you ever thought of yourself as God's vision, that when God got creative, he imagined you and he envisioned you? And he, I mean, we all know the scripture that when I was in my mother's womb, in the hidden place, he fashioned me and he created me and your works are marvelous, God. I know that full well. God was creative with you. I mean, look around our planet. Would you agree with me by looking at different people that God is very creative, right? And maybe even abstract from time to time, right? He's a creative God. So God envisions you. Look in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. It's a simple passage. It's a simple point. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Uh, there was a visionary. He was a seer. They, lots of times in the King James, they'll use this word S-E-E-R, seer. And it's a prophet that would prophesy based on what the Lord showed him. Sometimes prophets prophesy because they hear from the Lord. 
Some get an impression or a feeling from the Lord. Other times, you can literally see something from the Lord. And then you'll communicate what you see. And that's what happened here. There was a prophet that the Lord showed him something. And after he saw it in the spirit, he communicated it to the king. Now, what I think is so interesting about this particular prophecy is what did the Lord show this visionary? What did he show this seer? He showed him the eyes of the Lord looking throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are committed to him so that they won't grow weary. So he had a vision of God's vision. He had a vision of seeing God looking for his people to strengthen them. Man, you are God's vision. I'm with a group of people that, I mean, you're not perfect. None of us are perfect, but there are people in this room, you love God. I want God. I want God's best. I want God's plan. My heart belongs to you, Lord, and I know that there are times that I make mistake, and I get off target, and I fail, but God, ultimately, you're the love of my life, and I love you. Guess what? His eyes are ranging throughout the earth to find people just like you to strengthen you. They're ranging throughout the earth for a day when you feel weary and worn out and forsaken to strengthen you. How can you know that, Pastor Brad? Because the Lord showed it. He showed it to a visionary. And the visionary communicated what he saw. Look in Psalm 17, 8. It says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me as the sh- in the shadow of your wing or the shelter of your wing. This is a psalm of David. It's a prayer of David. At the time that he prayed this prayer, there were accusers around him saying that he wasn't going to make it as a king. He wasn't going to make it as a leader. They were accusing him, and he was feeling the pressure of all of that. And he cries out with this prayer, God, keep me as the apple of your eye. Okay? When you think about the apple of the eye, you think about the pupil. You think about if something's coming at your eye, there is an instant reaction of the eyelid that you can't even keep from happening. How many contact wearers do we have in the room? How many remember the first time you tried to put contacts in? Even if it's been a long time, you remember that moment? Um, We were looking back at old Faith Chapel pictures when my hair was much taller and bigger and actually even there, right? It was much taller and bigger and there. And we were also looking at the huge glasses that I was wearing in 1997 that for whatever reason were somewhat appropriate at the time. And we're laughing at these things, and we, it got me thinking back to the time when I went to get contacts. And I went to get them, and Beth's like, this is going to be trouble. And she prophesied, but prophesied it over me, and it's probably why it worked out that way. She's like, this is going to be trouble. He, he can't stand anything going toward his eyes. And they don't let you leave the place until you're able, able to successfully navigate getting the contacts in your eyes. How do you know what I'm talking about, right? I ended up in the eye doctor on my knees, not in prayer, but at the counter pulling my eyelid back and holding it to the best of my ability, trying not to look as I was trying to get that contact in my eye. Have you been there? It just isn't natural. It's crazy. Now, Beth started wearing contacts so early on in her life. She's like, Brad, all you've got to do, she's like, I'm like, how do you do that? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but this. This is an impossibility. It can't. It was, we were two, two and a half hours trying to get a contact in my eye. When I think about that, it's just not natural to touch your eye. Now, Beth, like I said, she's been doing this for years. It pops out, lands in the dirt, picks it up, puts it in her mouth, moves it around, sticks it in there. I'm like, how? How do you do that, right? I can't even envision that. 
There's something about the eye that it just, it wants to be protected. Your body wants to protect your eye. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Do you recognize that God doesn't consider it a problem to cover you and to protect you? His nature is such that when the enemy is coming at you, his nature is to cover you and to bless you. His nature is to keep you safe. He's a good God. He keeps us as the apple of his eye. He hides us in the shadow of his wing. He shelters us and watches out for us. I don't mean that we don't go through challenges and difficulties, but I trust that every good and perfect gift is from above. I trust that my God actually loves me and cares for me, and he will protect me. If he wouldn't, why does he give us verses like, uh, he's a strong tower that we can run to and be kept safe? He's a deliverer in our times of darkness and distress. He's our healer. He's our cleanser. He is our very great reward. He is our rock. He is the one that we turn to. Guys, we can trust the King of Kings. We can trust him. Now, in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, I want to share, you where I really, uh, share with you where I really get this thought that you are God's vision. And it comes from this kind of obscure passage in Genesis where the Lord speaks to a lady named Hagar. This is back before she developed her clothing line. Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. It says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. And what did she call him? And notice it's in quotes. You are the God who sees me, she says. And then she says more. I have now seen the one who sees me. The God who sees me. We've talked a lot here before that we see different names of God at different times in the scriptures. And it's because he's revealing something else about his character all along to his people. The God who sees me in the Hebrew, it's just simply two words, El Roi. El Roi, the God who sees me. Now here's what's interesting about this passage. Hagar was a servant to a lady named Sarah. Sarah was married to a fellow named Abraham. Abraham and Sarah had been promised by God that they were going to have a child, the promised child, and from that child, so many descendants were going to be given to them that you wouldn't even be able to count them just like he couldn't count the stars in the sky. He said, if you can count the sand on the shore of the sea, you can count your descendants. How many of you have ever received a promise from God? How many of you have ever had to wait? And Abraham was waiting. He and his wife had been married for a long time. They'd already tried to have kids for years. And when God comes in and says, you're going to have a child, and from that child, you're going to have more descendants than you can count, you know that faith arose and excitement arose. But lots of times after God speaks, in the next season of waiting, it can be even more discouraging. Abraham was 86 years old. They still didn't have a child. Sarah looks at her husband and she says, hey, I got a plan. I'm going to take my servant, Hagar. I'm going to give her to you. I want you to sleep with her. How many know this is getting crazy already? Sounds like Jerry Springer, right? I'm going to give you my servant so you can sleep with her, and we will build a family through her. Let me just make a little point of order here right now. You can't disobey the principles and commands of God and expect to bring about his promise and his blessing. That doesn't work that way. Okay, we don't go outside of God's will to get the promises from God accomplished. As a matter of fact, we don't accomplish the promises of God. God accomplishes the promises of God. So Abraham, listening to his wife, says, 
okay. I mean, not only does Sarah have a foolish idea, but great man of faith is a moron. How many know people of faith that are morons? And we sing Father Abraham and many sons, and I'm one of them, and so are you, but he was a moron. He says to his wife, okay, I'll sleep with her. How many know that's going to be good for Thanksgiving, family relationships, quality time moving forward, right? He sleeps with her. She conceives, oh, great, the plan's working, which pulls bitterness out of Sarah's heart because how come she got pregnant, but I can't get pregnant, and why did you sleep with her? Well, you told me to sleep with you. You you never do what I tell you to. Can't you just see it going back and forth? Hagar is being mistreated by her master, by Sarah, and she flees into the wilderness. And she's out there, and she's just prepared. She took no resources. She's ready to die. And God comes down, and God visits her. And when he visits her and he speaks to her and he encourages her and he gives her several promises, I'll, I'll let you know. I've had people say to me, this is where the Muslims came from. No, this is where the Arabs came from. And not every Arab is a Muslim. This is where the Arabs came from. That the Lord spoke to her and he said, listen, go back to Sarah and I'm with you and I'm going to get you through this season. And don't worry, at the right time, I'll release you and your son. You're going to have a son. And by the way, nobody's going to be able to tame this boy of yours. He's going to be crazy. He's going to dominate the wilderness. He's going to dominate this area. Uh, Name him Ishmael. He's going to dominate out here. Everything's fine. Don't even worry about it. And know that I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to take care of him. And you know what her response was? El Roe. You see me. You, You see me. And obviously, the Lord had opened her eyes because the next thing she says, I've seen the one who sees me. I have, I've seen El Roi himself. I've seen him. Where am I going with this? We started by, and it's still true, by giving us the promise that the eyes of the Lord are on those who are fully committed to him. It's true. That he keeps us as the apple of his eye. But do you know how, who else he's looking after? He's looking after every person in the wilderness that's running away, that's been disobedient, that's forsaken, that's abandoned, that doesn't get it. He is working on their behalf because he actually paid the price for them. He loves them. And if they'll look to him, they can say, I see the one that sees me. God doesn't just strengthen the committed. He strengthens the broken. I grew up in a church hearing the only prayer that God will pray is when a sinner repents for being a sinner. You know what? You would respond to the cry for help from someone that you haven't adopted as a child because God's placed love in you for other people and you would respond to somebody's cry, help me, help me. Do you think that our God's not going to respond to a cry for help and a cry for mercy? Do you think that God's just ignoring all the non-Christians until finally somebody, oh, I heard heard the right words, God forgive me, and now I'll show up. Actually, I believe that God's in the wilderness because people will show up in the wilderness and they need help. I believe that God's in the club, he's in the brokenness, he's in the office, he's in the corporate conference room. His presence is always everywhere, all the time, watching and waiting, and the moment someone looks, they'll see he was already there. He's the God that sees us. 
Here's a thought. God doesn't just see those whose hearts belong to him. He sees those whose hearts need to belong to him. And I am thankful that I'm the apple of his eye and God used me so that others can become the apple of your eye. Use me so that others can have hearts that are fully committed. Here's our response. Let's see the one who sees us and help others to see the one who sees them. You're God's vision. Number two, not only are you God's vision, but God, be my vision. We've talked a lot about vision the last two weeks. Personal vision, seeing vision, understanding vision, but God, be my vision. In Hebrews chapter 12, we get this incredible little teaching, verses 1 through 2. And I won't teach on the whole thing, but there's a great portion of this we'll look at today. It's all great, but we're just going to look at a portion of it. It says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Because we are, we're to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and we're to run with perseverance the race uh, marked out for us. And then we're told, let us fix our eyes or fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we are to fix our eyes upon who? Jesus. Where is he? At the right hand of the Father, right? This was written not to contemporaries of Jesus while he was walking with them. This wasn't somebody saying, hey, when Jesus is doing what he does tomorrow, make sure to pay attention to that. No, this is after his life, his death, his resurrection, 40 days of investing into his, his followers. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now we're told, fix our eyes on Jesus? How do we even do that? Did you even know we could do that? This is telling us that we can walk with spiritual vision. There are people in this room that God's opened your eyes where you've had times where you've had vision of Jesus or vision of his presence, vision of his glory. He's opened your eyes to that, your spiritual eyes. You've experienced it. That's amazing. You know what? I don't think that's just because you're the super spiritual one in the room. I think that that's an opportunity that's been given to every one of us. We talked about communion today. Our bodies are temples of who? The Holy Spirit. Why would the Lord tell, why would we uh, be exhorted in Scripture to fix our eyes on Jesus if we couldn't? You know, with that thought, just look in John chapter 5, verses 19 through, uh, 19 through 20. Jesus has healed a crippled man in, the, in this um, background. He's healed a crippled man but it happens to be the Sabbath day. And when he heals him, he says, hey, take your mat and take it with you when you leave. All right, now, have you ever said, heard people say, pick up your trash when you go? All right, grab your mat, man, when you head out. So the Lord speaks this to him. The Lord heals him, the guy picks up his mat and he starts walking away. You would think Jewish leaders would be excited about seeing a guy that was crippled healed. Not these guys. They're more upset that he's breaking one of their rules. You know what one of their rules is? Not to work on the Sabbath day. Well, Pastor Brad, that's one of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, but that never intended that we couldn't carry a mat. They had taken something that was supposed to be have a day of resting with God, and they had turned it into legalism again of what you could and could not do. And one of the things that you could not do was carry a mat. <sighs> Heaven forbid. Have you ever met people that they say that they, when they're working on something, they are resting? My grandpa Riley, his, his rest was to go to his workshop. Workshop. 
and he would fiddle with stuff. He might fiddle with wood. He might be working on something. That's just, he enjoyed it. That, he just, that's how he relaxed. And yet, in that culture, he would have been forsaken for breaking the Sabbath day. So this is what happens. The guy's healed. He's walking with his mat, and they're like, how dare you? Who told, why? He goes, hey, there was a guy. He healed me. He told me I could do this. Well, who told you? Well, I'm not sure. So the guy sees Jesus in a few moments, and he goes, Jesus says, hey, I see they've talked to you. Yeah, okay. The guy runs back to him. And he goes, it was Jesus. Jesus is the one that told me. He was quickly passing the buck, wanting to stay out of trouble. They come to Jesus, and they say to him, how dare you do this? How dare you tell him this? And look what he says in John 5. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he, look at this, sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Notice that this is present and futuristic tense. Jesus isn't saying, well, the Father showed me this before I came here, and these are the types of things I'm supposed to do. That's not what he said. He said, I do what the Father does, what he shows me. In other words, why did Jesus bring healing to that crippled man? Because in the Spirit, he saw his Father healing the crippled man. He knew because he saw that's what his father wanted done. And not only was that a great moment, but he goes on to say, he's going to show me even greater works than these, and you're going to be amazed. God's going to show me stuff, the father, that he hasn't even shown me yet. And when I do those things, then you're really going to hit the wall. Then it's really going to work you over. So we've got two verses. We're told to fix our eyes on Jesus. We look at Jesus fixing his eyes on the Father and watching what the Father does. It really it leads to the third point pretty well, which is this point, give me vision. I am uh, God's vision. I want God to be my vision, but I realize that I need him to give me vision. How many need vision from God? Spiritual and physical need vision from God. Let me remind you of a guy named Paul. You guys know the story. Acts chapter 16. Paul was persecuting the church because he thought that they were off target. He's on his way to Damascus. He's been given letters by the priest authorizing him to kill Christians. He's on his way there to go do that. As he's on his way, he has a vision of Jesus. So you don't have to be super spiritual to get a vision. This guy was murdering Christians. And he has a vision of Jesus. And in the vision, God speaks to him. He says, why are you persecuting me? What are you doing? You're going to suffer for me. You're going to follow me. And the Lord speaks to him. And, and when that vision ends, Paul couldn't see. His physical eyes weren't working. So somebody led him back to this guy's house in Damascus, and he had been there for a few days. Now, I don't know about you, but I think the Christians probably thought God has delivered us from the murderer. And perhaps we should find him and kill him before he tries to kill somebody else. I mean, they, they had to be trying to process this whole moment. Did you hear about Paul? He's coming down. He's been authorized to kill Christians. Did you hear about Paul? They said he had some sort of vision and he's gone blind. There had to be somebody go, go now's our chance to get rid of him. There had other people going, do you think that it's just a trick to get us where we feel comfortable? 
and we get back out in the street. I mean, they had to be processing this. There's a guy that lives in Damascus named Ananias. He's praying. While he's praying, God gives him a vision. And in his vision, he's laying hands on Paul and commanding Paul to be able to see. Now, I'm thinking Ananias has got to be going, I've been wanting a vision from God for years, and the vision that I get is laying my hands on this murderer and having his eyes restored? Are you kidding me, Jesus? I mean, God's ever shown you something that was quite disappointing. It's not at all what you were anticipating. But he was obedient, and he went, and he laid hands on Paul. Now, I don't know. It doesn't say in the scriptures. I don't know if they tied him up first so he could get away. I don't know. But he laid hands on Paul, and Paul's eyes were open. Paul became a predominant leader in the church. He laid hands on the sick. They recovered. People were filled with the Holy Spirit. He went to the synagogue, and he would reason with the Jews, and then he would go and he would talk to the Gentiles. This man was being used by God to change the atmosphere of the Middle East in an amazing way. But you know what he was? Still a man. And he might be filled with the Spirit, and he might have accountability partners, and he might have a love for God, but he's still a man. And he still needs direction. And look in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. I just think this is an interesting little thing here. Paul and his companions, because he might be the one that was named, but other people were traveling with him. They traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. They intended to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit kept them from going. Now, can you imagine processing that? How many know that God's word says that we're to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? How many know that? We're to take it everywhere. So they're trying to be obedient. Yes, Lord, we'll go everywhere. Oh, why can't we go to Asia? I don't know. It doesn't feel right. Just doesn't feel like we're supposed to go there. So they came to the border of Mysia. They tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them. What, what's going on? We've tried to go to Asia. We can't go. People in Bithynia need Jesus. Why can't we get in there? So they passed by Mysia, and they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging. And look at what the, the man in his vision said. Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready. Ooh, notice the we there. Luke, who wrote the, uh, the book of Acts, must have been traveling with him at the time. We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is amazing. Paul, filled with the Spirit, memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, and because he was known as a teacher of teachers, most likely had the entire Old Testament memorized. I'll guarantee you he had memorized the Torah and the prophetic books and the Psalms. People that were given the kind of credibility that he was given in the Jewish culture, it's because he had worked for it. So this man that knew the Bible inside and out, that's now been filled with the Spirit, that is converting Jews to Jesus and reaching Gentiles for Jesus and being used, he was used in so many signs and wonders that people were being healed by his sweat. Can you imagine? The power of God was so strong on him that when they would wipe the sweat from his brow, literally, people were healed by those handkerchiefs that had his sweat on it. I mean, this, this is an am amazingly anointed person. And yet, when he tried to go to Asia, because he felt like he was supposed to, when he got there, he's like, oh, this isn't right. 
Well, let's go, let's go to Bithynia. Ooh, we're not supposed to go. Well, where are we going? We're supposed to go and preach the gospel. I, I, I don't know where to go. Let's go down to Troas. Why'd they choose Troas? It doesn't say. It just says they went. Maybe they had a relative there. Maybe Paul had Uncle Tito that lived in Troas. Tito from Troas. You know what? I can't stand the guy, but he's a great cook. Let's go down. We can get a meal and we can regroup and we'll see where we're supposed to go. And it's while they're in Troas that Paul has a vision. And the vision was pretty simple. He saw a man from Macedonia. How did he know he was from Macedonia? Because the guy said, come to Macedonia and help us. You know why God gives visions to us? You ready for this, heavy revy? We need them. Those guys, but Pastor Brad, didn't Mysia and Bithynia and Troas and Phrygia and Macedonia, didn't all of those places need the gospel? You better believe they did. You better believe it. But God was very strategic about putting his people exactly where he wanted them to be as the gospel began to spread throughout the earth. I'm going to take it. I'm going to go here with you. Some of you have a love and you want to share the gospel with others. And there might be someone that you really want to talk to, but you're the worst person to talk to them. Why? Maybe that person has a prejudice towards you. And if you went to talk to them, maybe they're prejudiced because of the color of your skin. Maybe they're prejudiced because of your gender. Maybe they don't like the area of the town that you live in. And if you go with them with the gospel, they've already got preconceived ideas about you and they just won't receive it. And if that's the case, you know what? God's raising somebody else up to reach that person. But that doesn't excuse us from sharing the gospel. We keep going, Messia? No. Bithynia? No. Come to Macedonia. Okay, God, if that's where you want us to go, that's where we'll go. I'm virtually done. Virtually, which really doesn't mean anything. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to be honest. You don't have to, but we're in church, and if you lie, you go to hell. So I want you to be honest. Okay. How many of you have ever been to other beautiful parts of our country or beautiful parts of the world, and you've thought while you're there, why do I live where I live? Come on, I want, to, I want to see some honesty in this room. Okay? Wow, you really raised your hand. I've never seen you respond so well to be back. All right. Beth and I have done this. When we were in Hawaii, I mean, what are you going to do, right? You're like, why would we live anywhere else? You know, I mean, it, it, it's just amazing. When we were in Idaho, where they were like, why do we live where we live? Why do we? And we all do it. Why do we? Why? This is so beautiful. Why do we? And then we say things like this. Well, because we wouldn't get any work done here because we'd just be looking at the scenery. Are we with it? And we all, you know, you know why I live where I live? You know why? Oh, your parents were close by. Dad's in heaven, so I can't get there right now. You know why? Because in January of 1997, I was driving up this highway out here. And the Spirit of the Lord came into that car. And he said, I want you to start a church on this side of O'Fallon, Missouri. That's why. I didn't choose O'Fallon because I'd done a marketing study to see which, which uh, growing city in Missouri would be most susceptible to a charismatic church. I started it because the Lord spoke to me and he said, start a church and reach people with the love of God. That's why I'm here. That's why Beth's here. I mean, I like O'Fallon, but there are prettier places in O'Fallon. 
I mean, come on. I, some of you, even if you're O'Fallon core and core, you've got to admit it. There's places, and some of you moved here and you're like, why am I here? Obviously, the Spirit of the Lord has directed you, and He's put us together for such a time as this. Because O'Fallon needs to be more like heaven than it is. And St. Charles County needs to be more like heaven than what it is. And there's been prophetic word for years that God's going to start something so beautiful in the St. Louis region that's going to impact our nation. And there are people all around this region that are crying out for it, believing for it, and praying for it. And we don't give up what he's shown us for just a momentary moment. We keep believing because it's worth it. Are we going to be here for 20 more years? I, I don't know. I might die tomorrow. I'm not trying to get out of anything. But I, I, don't, I don't know when. I mean, my grandpa always used to say, I know when I'm going to die because my birth certificate has an expiration date. But mine doesn't. I, I, how many of you, you have a clue? I, I don't know when I'm going to die. You don't know when you're going to die. I don't know how long the Lord's going to give us the privilege of being here, but you know what? The calling hasn't changed. And we're going to walk it out. And if it's 20 more years, it's 20 more years. If it's 20, that's fine. God, let heaven come. Let people have an encounter with your presence. Let them be so filled with you that they carry you everywhere they go. In a, in a community of doubt and disbelief, may we be the one that ignites faith. And in a religious world that is so faithless and doesn't even believe in the miraculous of God anymore, may we be the ones that stand and say, he did it, he does it, and he'll do it again because he's the same yesterday and today and forever. And if he raised the dead then, he can raise the dead now. And if he healed the broken then he can heal the broken now and we stand and we believe for the vision think about it devoted people of God still need uh, God to give them vision for all he wants them to do and devoted people of God still need to obey when God gives them the vision I think one of the things I like about Paul was that when he saw the man from Macedonia he didn't say oh I didn't really want to go to Macedonia I mean, we're already at Troas. Uncle Tito, we still got leftovers. Listen, we'll stay in Troas for 30 days. We've been meandering everywhere. Stay here for, we'll go to Macedonia next month. No, it says they concluded the Holy Spirit wanted them in Macedonia. They packed up and they took off. God, help us to be people of obedience. Do you realize that delayed obedience is disobedience? It, I, help us to be people of obedience. Help us to be people of vision.